As weird as the 1960s became, Crazy Tom stood out. He set fires and started fights on the Stanford campus, supplied guns and explosives to fellow militants, and staged holdups, quote, to support the revolution. He also created a secret mountaintop training camp and bomb factory to groom would-be urban guerrillas, from young, mostly white Maoists, to the secret Black Panther army trying to free Soledad brother George Jackson from San Quentin. Then, in February and March 1971, Crazy Tom Mosher put on a suit and tie, brushed down his wispy blonde hair, and testified in secret before the Senate Subcommittee on Internal Security. According to his sworn testimony, the revolutionary terrorist had worked all along for the Federal Bureau of Investigation and its state counterpart, the California Bureau of Criminal Investigation and Identification, the CII. In his testimony, Mosher warned of a growing campaign of revolutionary sabotage, terror, and guerrilla war, which had already left a trail of violence and murder across Northern California. The Senate published his tale at taxpayers' expense, while Reader's Digest ran a first-hand account of his experiences inside the revolutionary left. As Mosher and the senators told it, he had been an informant, passively watching the illegal violence of the left and reporting to the authorities to help them enforce the law. As those of us who knew him had seen for ourselves, he had created much of the terrorist violence he now condemned. At the time, I was an anti-war activist at Stanford, increasingly burned out, cynical, and without too many lingering liberal illusions. Yet I never would have suggested that the FBI or other police agency had paid Crazy Tom to shoot guns on campus, set fires, or run a guerrilla training camp. More likely, I figured, he had created his own chaos while selling his handlers whatever bullshit he could get them to buy. I was wrong. On March 8th, 1971, just as Mosher was about to testify, a group calling itself the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into the Bureau's office in Medea, Pennsylvania, and liberated over a thousand classified documents, which they began releasing to the press. The purloined files included the hitherto secret caption COINTELPRO, shorthand for counterintelligence program. NBC's Carl Stern then filed suit under FOIA, and in 1973, a federal court ordered the FBI to make public its clandestine COINTELPRO memos. One of the memos caught my eye. In May 1968, Director J. Edgar Hoover had secretly authorized the FBI, quote, to expose, disrupt, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the new left's opposition to the Vietnam War and support for black liberation. Expose, disrupt, discredit, or otherwise neutralize are terms of art, and none of Hoover's underlings could have doubted what he was telling them to do. Far from enforcing the law or protecting our First Amendment rights to protest, the FBI would use against us the classic techniques that the czarist secret police and its European counterparts had used for centuries that the FBI had perfected since the post-World War I Palmer raids and that the CIA and military had for years directed against foreign foes. Our crazy Tom, it appeared, was looking like far more than a self-propelled provocateur. To find out for certain, a group of us at the Pacific Studies Center, a radical off-campus research institute, decided to look into what, Mosh- what Mosher had done with us and to us. We interviewed Tom over a period of several days, during which he ranged from overly talkative to irritatingly cagey to truly terrified that we had set him up to be killed. We talked with dozens of his closest former comrades, and we tried to decipher the relevant COINTELPRO memos with all their deleted names and details. The court who allowed the FBI to black out every place where Mosher's name might have fit, but once we reconstructed his violent life and crimes, no one could doubt that Crazy Tom did exactly what the counterintelligence programs called for him to do. Um, so we'll get into a little background of him here. This section's called Too Crazy to Be a Pig. <laughs> Whatever else he might have been, the short, scrappy Mosher was no spoiled preppy. 
His father, he told me, had been sent to the penitentiary, leaving his mother to turn tricks at home while he grew up on the streets of uptown Chicago, learning to survive among the roughest rednecks, hillbillies, and other refugees from the American hinterland. Smart, sensitive, and charismatic, he quickly learned how to hustle, charming the improbable W. Clement Stone, an insurance tycoon who gave millions to former President Nixon. Stone also wrote books telling people how to develop PMA, a positive mental attitude, by jumping <laughs> yeah. up and down every morning chanting, I am healthy, I am happy, I am successful. Tom met Stone at the McCormick Boys Club, took him as a big brother, and later got him uh, to write a recommendation to Stanford, where the eager young man enrolled in the fall of 1962. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. W. Clement Stone, uh, PMA, yeah. anyways. Very interesting. Um, so he also kind of a, a, a gifted child, it sounds like. Right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Plucked off the streets of uptown Chicago. So right. Mosher tried hard to score in the world of big money and soft manners. But for all his positive mental attitude, the foster son of success lacked the financial backing and social background, while he caused so many fights that the fraternity he joined asked him to leave. Quote, Masha was one of the most violent people I'd ever known, recalled one of his well-bred frat brothers. In the space of two and a half months, he punched out eight people. Tom finally dropped out of Stanford in the spring of 1965, filled with admiration, awe, envy, hatred, and resentment for the Silver Spoon set. Had he failed, or had Stanford failed him? The wiry street fighter tried to work out the balance, but never could. After spending a few months at the civil rights movement in, in Mississippi, Mosher returned to uptown Chicago, where he became, quote, a revolutionary. Several of my friends from Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, had started a local community organizing project called Jobs or Income Now, JOIN, and Mosher, whom I met casually at the time, became one of its stars. He also married a college professor's daughter named Mary, fathered a son, Keith, and rubbed elbows with many of America's best-known young radicals. In, in August 1968, the SDS leader and later weather woman Bernadine Dorn asked him to go to, in her place on a trip to Cuba. As fellow travelers remembered him, Mosher was a gung-ho Che Guevara bent on guerrilla war. In fact, he was already working for the government, or at least looking for a job. Quote, I, wasn't, I really wasn't such a stone-cold revolutionary in Cuba, he told me. I was just acting as one, carefully observing and analyzing for my own benefit. You'd have done the same thing if you had in mind what I had in mind. <sighs> Yikes. Uh, returning from Cuba in October, Tom met with FBI agents and gave them films he had taken on the trip. He then moved back to Stanford, and no later than, let us say, April 1969, he began what he called his, quote, active association with the Bureau. Why did Tom sign on with the feds? Take your pick. In various breaths, he spoke of his poor boy's resentment of rich white radicals and black militant thugs, his patriotic disgust with their violence and anti-Americanism, his longstanding anti-communism, and his sudden disillusionment with Cuban socialism. He also mentioned pressure from the law, his need for money, and growing marital strains with Mary. In Tom's topsy-turvy mind, most, if not all, could have played a part. One other possibility and this is interesting, was that Mosher came to the FBI for military intelligence. Yeah. His military records, which we managed to see, showed that he had served two and a half months on active duty with the Marines. He then remained in the reserves for six years, but without any evidence of ever attending a single reserve meeting. This, this was the file one would expect from someone performing an undercover assignment, but we were never able to nail that down. In any case, Tom's temper, his passion for guns and explosives, and what he called his, quote, 
peculiar mental illness at the time made him the perfect provocateur. His madness drove him to live on the edge, continuously courting danger, while working for the FBI allowed him to carve out a free fire zone between the militants and the law where he could let rip his terrifying rage. Just as the COINTELPRO memos directed, Mosher brought into the anti-war movement an incredible aura of violence, which disrupted our protests from within and discredited them to those on the fringe. He baited the moderates and egged on the militants. He even fought right-wing young Americans for freedom, threatening publicly to sodomize one of their campus leaders. His fury surging just below the skin, he acted like a savage six-year-old, flying into a rage whenever he wanted, upsetting, unnerving, and grasping for control. Flashing his pistol at a nonviolent anti-war sit-in in April 1969, he offered to take care of the campus police and boasted of trashing their car windows. Time to get serious, he urged. <laughs> Time to fun. pick up the gun. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Late you. one night, he fired eight or nine shots into the home of Stanford President Kenneth Pitzer and then tried to get the incident reported in the press. He also fired into a university auditorium and during a demonstration against ROTC, he fired several shots into the air. Um, and then there's like a drawing of him from 1972, which is like super fucking hilarious. Uh, yeah. That uh, we'll probably post. Um, yeah. yeah, his caricature. In July 1969, Mosher went to a party at the home of H. Bruce Franklin, a brilliant scholar of both Herman Melville and science fiction, and a mm -hmm. prime target of the FBI's COINTELPRO program. The, quote, Maoist English professor, as the press called him, had become a convert to old left thinking, zealously defending the historic necessity of Stalinist terror in the Soviet Union, a fatuous claim that won him scant support. Together with his equally militant wife, Jane, Bruce ran the Revolutionary Union, which pre preached the impossibility of nonviolent revolution, but overlooked the even larger improbability of a violent one. The party that night was celebrating the acquittal of several radicals charged with fomenting a street riot in downtown Palo Alto. A large crowd showed up, including the defendants, three jurors, most of the local anti-establishment, and some visiting left-wing honchos from across the country. The guests were talking, dancing, and drinking wine when Mosher slapped a juror who was dancing with Mary. <laughs> Bruce jumped in, some serious brawling began, and it looked for a time that the police might come, using the opportunity to raid the house, search for weapons, and rough up a few self-proclaimed revolutionaries. After the punch-up, Franklin cooled to Mosher, telling his comrades not to trust the lunatic. I may be crazy, Masha replied, but I'm not a pig. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, okay. In spite of Franklin's tenure, the Stanford administration soon brought disciplinary charges against him, holding him responsible for the climate of senseless violence that Crazy Tom helped create. Adding to the furor, Mosher leaked hearsay stories to the press, accusing Franklin of supplying weapons and explosives to the Black Panther Party in Oakland. Such stories took their toll. Sacrificing civil liberties in hopes of gaining security, the faculty judges voted to fire Franklin for his political activism. Like Bruce, the vast majority of us in the Stanford movement tried to keep a safe distance from Crazy Tom, finding his behavior bizarre. Many of us heard stories of how he pulled his gun on friends, beat his wife, and bragged of, quote, rolling queers outside the gay bars in Palo Alto's Whiskey Gulch. We saw him as a constant chameleon, always shifting roles. One day he would play the bearded gorilla in field jacket and combat boots. Another day he would pose as the clean-shaven movement lawyer William Z. Foster, turned out in suit, tie, and wingtips. He would also appear as a campus queen in purple velvet, a white Huey P. Newton in a costly leather coat, an Aryan racist, an authentic-sounding anti-Semite spouting slogans from the neo-Nazi Bible Imperium. Yeah. yeah right? Uh, uh, 
or an off-the-screen James Dean in Levi's and T-shirt, a sleeve rolled up around a pack of cigarettes. Quote, I'm from Uptown, man. The toughest neighborhood in America. <laughs> right, yeah. Cool. Tom was crazy, all right, and everybody knew it. Why then did anyone ever trust him? In part, he traded on his poor white origins, especially with all the guilt-ridden rich kids who looked to the working class to make the revolution. Quote, in Uptown, we're really more lumpen proletariat. He later told me with a knowing smile, none of us can keep a job. But mostly he and his rags to revolution image found an appreciative audience in a small but growing cadre with red books and revolvers who were always trying to act more Mao than thou, a maddening vanguard that one wit dubbed the, quote, marksman lemmingists. He would periodically make chiding remarks about my nonviolence or put forward adventurous proposals, one pacifist recalled. But he was only one of many political crazies. There were lots of people who had even weirder ideas than he did. So Tom's craziness became Tom's cover as he stamped the anti-war movement with his own brand of random terror. Perhaps we were also beguiled by a lingering faith in the very system we opposed. Mosher's too crazy to be an informer, we all agreed. The government would never hire anyone as loony as him. But that was just the point. Tom's violence and peculiar mental illness at the time were precisely what his FBI handlers wanted. How better to disrupt, misdirect, and discredit our opposition to the war? Mosher was a loaded gun that the Bureau pointed at us, trashing our First Amendment right to protest without government interference and our freedom to decide for ourselves the message we wanted our nonviolent demonstrations to convey. Oof. So, uh, a lot, you know. Yeah. A, a, a lot of relevant shit there. The the marksman lemmingists mm-hmm. more mouth than thou. Yeah, that's uh, very this, that your part I was going to mention earlier. That's very resonant with uh, our Gazi Kodo discussion from earlier. The fact that you know he would play up or like be kind of coy about having gone to college and act like he was you know the salt of the earth. Like because yeah, you know there is like in these sort of left organizations like often they require like a certain level of fluency with like theoretical texts or whatever kind of concerns that uh develop like in a uh you know liberal arts or like kind of a a bourgeois like environment really like Mm -hmm. you know i think there definitely is like a contingent on like the the modern left and the left in the 60s that kind of has a certain class anxiety you know like uh or shame shame or guilt driven and you can see yeah, that being exploited, yeah. like, you know, in both of these cases where, like, you know, you have, like, the reparations core of Black Hammer organization where, like, to make up for, like, you know, all these, like, guilty simping whites, yeah, like, you just who are, like, buy, like, Gazi's, like, uh, quote unquote, caffeine pills, like, off market stimulants <laughs> or whatever. Like, and well, it's so you know, much yeah. stuff, right? I mean, I think even, um, even like Charles Manson was able to, uh, yeah. parlay Jim that Jones a little too, bit, you know, yeah, yeah Jim Jones, um, yeah, Jim but yeah, like the I fact say? that yeah, the fact that like Manson was like this kind of lumpen proletariat, like there, there's a certain romanticism around like the lumpen proletariat, uh, both I think both like black and white in the '60s, and I think mm-hmm. I think some people looked at uh, like the Black Panthers as kind of the probably more for like the kind of language they used and like their posture more than like their actual ideas or mm-hmm. ideology. Cause I mean like Bobby seal and Huey Newton met, I think at Scripps college. So like they were like, even they were like in college, like they weren't just, they weren't like gang members or something that like yeah. 
Red Mao one day or something like that, even though they did, you know, kind of recruit people off the streets and things like that. But then also like the white lumpen proletariat, like the poor whites, um, mm-hmm. which you still see a little bit today whenever anyone kind of brings up like the white working class. Right. Um, yeah, it's a thing. Which, uh, which obviously thing. It is a real thing. But it's also thing. like there's a specter of like what the white working class is, you know, like usually if someone has like some kind of hang up about you know, whatever, like a wokeness or whatever, they'll like invoke like, you know, an imaginary like Republican worker who, you know, is usually just like in their own imagination. Not to say that there aren't people like that, but, you know, it's definitely just like a trope in these kind of like stupid inner left debates. uh, Yeah. And then on the other side, the kind of sympathy for the white worker crowd, like particularly in the Trump era, became almost like this um, like it's funny how you see it trickle down into Hollywood. I was saying to uh, one of our mutual friends the other day, like, oh, look, another like white working class misery, like prestige movie is coming out. It's yeah. going to try to win Oscars. And it's all it's always in some like Rust Belt town, like some Bruce Springsteen ass, like mm-hmm. beaten down kind of thing. And it's it, it just smacks of like coastal liberal elites, like parachuting in and being like wow (laughs) like they are people you know and and like and but like this real heavy romanticization of the misery and like i guess you could say dirtbagginess of like (laughs) poor whites um yeah whether they're like southern or they're like white ethnics in like Mm -hmm. rust belt cities and it can can get i think kind of carried away i mean i still feel like in the like imagination like people don't really often think of like black people as being workers or even gay people or something like that as being like workers like a lot of the time when they imagine a worker they think of like a cartoon of a construction worker or something you know <laughs> like a white guy who's that got like true. a pot yeah. belly and he's wearing like a hard hat you know like and he, you know that's like what they because their own experience like is not you know in sort of uh I don't know, manual trades. And I mean, this kind of like, you know, bleeds a little bit into the whole like discourse of like redefining what class even is, where it has nothing to do with like wealth or like, you know, uh, economics uh, position, but like sort of uh, meaningless signifiers, you know, like I saw a tweet the other day that was like Elon Musk is working class and like our local school board is uh, ruling class is elite. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's you see this type of thing all the time. Like I remember that uh, Slate Star Codex blog had like one of the best examples where he said, like, you know, we're redefining working class Republicans, like feel free to take this. You know, Trump is like working class because he likes NASCAR and he doesn't like musical theater or whatever, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like that, it it, it like, is kind of a, it, it is full of like these like cultural signifiers. It's like I can think of like a friend of mine from high school who went on to be like an electrician mm-hmm. and has by far like made so much more money than I have. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. But yeah, like he didn't like go to college co- and yeah, stuff like, like so grad he, students uh, are the ruling class. Like so you if, know, if you if you saw this guy, you, know, yeah. you would you would immediately think like he drives like a lifted truck, like he wears like, you know, board shorts and like like he yeah. dresses I mean, the way of, of like white working class person. You know? like, oh for sure. Yeah. No, they're not um yeah. exactly. But you know what I mean? It's like if you looked at that person or you talked with him, you would like get this vibe of, like, oh he's like super white working class. But he's actually like middle class like and actually probably makes more money than most people who go to 
grad like well yeah like plumbers <laughs> and electricians like yeah generally like are pretty yeah definitely yeah more than people who go to grad school yeah like are piddling stipends uh yeah, but he wouldn't see himself people, as like, more elite than like a like uh, associate an adjunct professor that makes like 35 grand a year but like has like two grad degrees and like considers himself like part of the intelligentsia you know what i mean yeah well like, i he don't would even interpret think that grad even students as, I, don't, I don't think the professors think of themselves i mean professors if anything like you know no one wants to think of themselves as being like in america no one really wants to think of themselves. We talked about this before. No one wants to think of themselves as part of like an elite class, you know, like it's something that you have to painfully acknowledge and kind of do like self-crit about like even in any context, you know, like. Well, I uh, think there's people in America that that are unashamed at like making money. That's a very maybe privately, thing. but not publicly. Well, I yeah, I mean, there's always a kind of thing about like everyone wants to kind of pretend to be middle class in America. Exactly, like George, like H. W. Bush, like probably privately doesn't care about being a Bush, like you know, or being like a uh, very elite. But you know, in terms of how or W, like how they present themselves, you know, it's different. Like there is a sort of general like shame that attends it like in any context especially like in left-wing context but like in general you know one of the most powerful myths in america is like the myth of the self-made man like that's, that's the true. real icon of even the silicon valley lords um they have like the self-made person which is bullshit obviously um yeah not self-made but also that they're kind of like underdogs like yeah in the like they're iconoclasts and like yeah you know elon musk is like disrupting things so like he's not an elite like he's somehow he's creating value you know like he you yeah know, he made like uh all that money like so he deserves it just it. so happens that he's so good at creating value that he has like billions of dollars and you yeah. can't really hold that against him uh but there is still a kind of feeling of like maybe you would hold that against him if it was framed differently but it never is framed in a critical way no exactly and in fact it's worse to be like someone who is like you know uh for instance like knowledge maybe isn't seen as being value so like a teacher is not creating value in the way that like elon musk is by like pretending that he's like digging a hole for a car to go into to like uh decongest the highways or whatever like you know uh yeah it's all like a lie and bullshit but anyway like anyways uh, yeah they're it, I think that um, yeah. this this uh, desire to like prostrate yourself or like defer to while I think it often comes from like a, a good place, I think uh, particularly when you're talking about like white radicals, like interfacing with like black radicals, like I think there's definitely like a huge positive. And I think generally speaking, like the white radical, like sympathy for the Black Panther Party, I see as overall like a positive thing for sure, you know. But I think it also you do have to like remain a little we always have to remain a little vigilant because like you could get a guy like Crazy Tom coming in who leans in to like being this like white working class like dirtbag lumping proletariat from uptown Chicago and stuff like that. And then he starts talking about like blowing up like laboratories and stuff and you all kind of want to go along with him because he embodies this kind of like working class masculinity that maybe people feel self-conscious that like they're just like armchair revolutionaries and yeah. they're not like it's easy to guilt trip i think people especially in this period uh into feeling like what are you really doing like you're just sitting around having meetings but like we need to go out and do stuff and yeah and even manipulating taking like the actions of people like the black panthers which i think honestly like a lot of their provocations were like well thought out 
and mm-hmm. like calculated. They weren't uh, things spiraled out of control as like the violence escalated. But initially, like they, I, I think they had you know strict rules. For example, like early on about like uh, kind of rules of engagement with the police. Like you'd stock them with guns, but you wouldn't just start like shooting at them for like no reason because mm-hmm. you bring down like a huge reaction. But so anyway, so I, that kind of leads into. Uh, the next part of this uh, this article, yeah. um, where Crazy Tom takes it this takes it up a notch. Um, this is titled "Training for Guerrilla War." Reaching beyond the Stanford campus, Mosher quickly found his ticket to the big time in a remote patch of ravines, redwoods, and rattlesnakes high in the nearby Santa Cruz Mountains. The land, as it was called, belonged to a group of draft resistors who had bought it for a retreat. It was, the also, it was also the outdoor playpen of one of Tom's former fraternity brothers, a nearsighted and slightly mad charmer called Blind Timmy. Tom had heard that his old friends still lived in the area and set off to find him, driving into the mountains on an old logging road, then trekking upward along a tiny twisting trail until he came to a small clearing with a homemade cabin built of wooden stone. In the clearing, Mosher spotted Timmy frolicking with a band of teenage boys and girls. They were all naked. A self-anointed guru, Blind Timmy preached the virtues of pansexualism, seeking universal unity and spiritual ecstasy through an open-ended communion of bodies and souls. In time, Tom and Mary joined in, and for a while it was Timmy, Tom, and Mary. But the menage did not work out. Quote, I found that I was emotionally right-wing and came to see the whole thing as diabolical possession, Tom confessed. <laughs> I guess my soul just had too much of the funky gray Midwest. Diabolical ain't nothing new under the sun. Interesting, yeah. Uh, new okay. Age cult tries to be poly. It, it, it's mm-hmm. a disaster. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, Timmy scooted off to do his missionary work elsewhere, leaving Tom free to use the land as he wanted, which is, which is just as the FBI memo suggested, quote, to take advantage of all opportunities for counterintelligence and also inspire activity in instances where circumstances warrant. As early as the spring of 1969, Mosher brought some Stanford radicals and black militants from Oakland to the mountain hideaway to practice shooting and, quote, discuss alone the techniques of using high explosives, as he later testified to the Senate subcommittee. He and his black comrades also got hold of over 100 sticks of dynamite, along with timers, mercuric fulminate for the fuses, and electronic detonators, all of which they stashed on the mountain. By summer, the land had become, as Tom told it, quote, literally a bomb factory. Every bomb factory needs a mad scientist, and Mosher found it in a short, bright, and profoundly angry black student named Jimmy Johnson. Mosher had met him at Stanford in 1963, and the two outsiders grew close. J.J. had dropped out about the same time as Tom and was just coming back to finish his degree in chemical engineering. Mosher spotted him at at an SDS party where, as friends in the Black Student Union put it, J.J. stood out, quote, like a fly in the buttermilk. The two began spending time together and winding each other up. Together, they jeered at the tough-talking rads and their tea party sit-ins and promised to show these punk kids what revolution was all about. J.J.'s friends in SDS tried to warn him away, telling him that Mosher was crazy, if not a police agent. But most of the Stanford radicals thought Johnson a little loosely wired, too, and left him to his fate. Mad Dog Jimmy, Crazy Tom, they seemed a perfect pair. At the time, J.J. was facing trial for rioting in downtown Palo Alto, while the university was trying to discipline him for disrupting a trustees meeting where he had protested Stanford's millions of dollars in Pentagon research contracts. So much for civil disobedience, he told Tom. Why put yourself up in plain view for something that doesn't get any results anyway? Why not use something safer and more efficient? Something with a bang. When Mosher heard this, his eyes lit up. 
Many young radicals talked about bombs, but JJ knew how to make them. Fire bombs, dynamite bombs, time bombs. Quote, JJ used to blow my mind with some of the things he made, Masha recalled. He even made a timing device from a photoelectric cell, which would go off when someone opened the door or turned on a light. Introducing JJ to some of the most militant blacks in Northern California, Mosher pushed him to act out his anger. What Mosher did was to bring this machismo, tough guy shit into the movement, JJ later explained. But at the time, he seemed to JJ to be one of the few white boys willing to do more than talk. With JJ as his revolutionary bomb maker, Mosher spread the word among Northern California radicals that he had a full-fledged training camp in the mountains. He then recruited the most militant to crawl on their bellies over the rocky terrain, snipe at make-believe pigs behind every bush, blow up tree stumps with homemade bombs, and stage mock guerrilla raids on whatever targets their rich imaginations would conjure up. Where Blind Timmy and his nubile playmates once pursued their polymorphous pleasures, stern-eyed guerrillas now trained for war, while the FBI's Tom Mosher, king of the mountain and master of, quote, Guevara Ranch, supplied them with dynamite, grenades, pistols, rifles, and machine guns. Of course, the modest Mosher denied any credit. My role was strictly passive, he told me. I simply used my access to the land to monitor the illegal activity of others, a standard law enforcement technique. Playing the super patriot, he denied that the FBI ever ordered him to go against the law or that they ever ran the COINTELPROS, except perhaps on paper. Those stupid sons of bitches never understood that we were at war, he insisted. I had to go beating on doors to push them to do something about indiscriminate terror. Wow. He's like a Stallone, like, Cobra cop, basically. <laughs> yeah. Like, beneath that. So, like, a standard law enforcement technique. What yeah, it's really funny the way he guy? talks. Like, uh, in his Senate testimony, which I think we'll talk about more thoroughly later, he's like, I assess yes. the situation to be, you know, like, uh, a very, like, cop speak. Uh, I will say that that yeah. having read all of his Senate testimony from 1971, that it surprised me, given that his reputation is of such like a mad, crazy, bad, like motherfucker, yeah. like just out of control that mm-hmm. when he sits down in front of the Senate, he's like very well spoken, very yeah. knowledgeable. And I would say even kind of uh, like like thoughtful about like uh kind of describing like you know his like uh taxonomizing of the new left and the various currents and shit like that like he's he's he even corrects the senators a few times when they want him to say like they're trying to lead him into saying like so the so they were brainwashed in cuba right yeah it's like no like no that's not how it works and you know he's like even complimentary to the new left when he says like we were doing certain strategies that were like very popular very effective and then other strategies which were like not effective and 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 like what what's kind of you have to read between the lines to see where he He's omitting his own involvement in some of the less good things that happen mm-hmm. or some of the crazier things that happen. But he, he strikes you as like somebody who like, I don't know. I don't know what this peculiar mental illness at, that he had at the time was that they keep quoting that he said. But uh, maybe it, is it the personality A, personality B? Like, was he hypnotized by Estabrooks? Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, but no, because I noticed, he see- yeah, I definitely noticed the same thing that he, uh, I mean, yeah, he seems like very, like, well-spoken, like, very focused, like, you know, yeah, highly intelligent. I guess that is consistent with how some people described him. But yeah, he doesn't seem like, uh, I mean, we've read on the show, like, set of testimonies for, set from people who seem like much more like crazy uh to use his his nickname you know yeah so i think uh, it kind of it, it i think it would sort of debunk what some people like might want to i don't know minimize like uh 
the Tom Mosher story by being like he was just a crazy person that the FBI kind of was able to like loosely control and he kind of set him off to like do his own thing and it was all his own peculiar mental condition because like this guy comes off as sounding like he was in much more conscious control of Mm -hmm. like what he was doing both when he was like pretending to be a radical and in terms of like his coordination with the FBI and uh, the other like police authorities. Like he, he seemed like he, he had a very clear cogent idea of what he was doing and even kind of like called out the FBI for like not being as aggressive as he wanted to be and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and sees himself as kind of a cop. And I think we can't forget the military intelligence connection because that really didn't come up very much in the testimony or in this article. I guess he said that they weren't really able to verify it. Mm-hmm. But I think he entered the Marines the same year he entered Stanford. And I think he was in from 62 to 67. And the fact that is peculiar that he was on active duty for like three months and then on reserve for the rest of the time and like never went to a reserve meeting. But he was also going to college at the time. You know, yeah, um, and it does overlap with like they I guess say, yeah, that's like consistent with someone who would be undercover, but you know, you can't they can't substantiate it fully, or they weren't able to. Yeah, yeah someone yeah. who like so, just so didn't there's go still, to any meetings and yeah, yeah, there's still fragments of the story that maybe we haven't even like dug up, and more on the side of not just COINTELPRO but like Operation Chaos, which involved the CIA and the military. So like that, like once you got to like 1969 that's when you really saw military intelligence undercovers uh, infiltrating the anti-war movement uh, domestically. And so, you know, there could have been that. That as well. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.